It's a classic game that combines the reality of chance with the fun of low-stakes psychology and very short-term bragging rights. It's the ideal dispute settlement system between two parties because it's both impartial and fun. It allows the player to have some sense of agency over the outcome of the game when, in reality, it all comes down to basic numbers. It uses a strange combination of dubiously ranked everyday items to establish a hierarchy of wins, losses, and draws. We're talking rock, paper, scissors. And it's a fascinating look at an example of game theory in everyday life. And welcome to episode four of Game Theory. I am Nick Andrews. I'm Chris Andrews here, back to talk to you about some very exciting, very fun, very accessible stuff this week, Nick. Welcome to our, yeah, I guess this is our second in our WTF series. We did chess was our first episode. Now we're doing WTF is rock, paper, scissors. And it's, it's first of all, we're going to just settle this right off the bat. This whole rock, paper, scissors shoot. It's, that's a four-part thing. That is not a thing that exists. It's on the third thing that you go that it's rock, one, duh, duh, right? Like not duh, 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 duh. Right, yeah. I, I think, I, I don't know if this is like a geographical divide in the same way that like soda versus pop versus Coke right. is out there. But you're absolutely right. It's on the third. You say rock, paper, and scissors, and that's when you do the thing. I don't know who came up with this shoot, this like fourth step, but when I when I left Wyoming, basically, right. these barbarians were doing this fourth step and they were introducing terms like shoot. At a time like this, in this country... Saying that word in rock, paper, scissors literally defeats the purpose of the game. I'll just shoot right. first, I win. It's absolutely ridiculous. So it is on the third. But, Nick, what are the basic rules of rock, paper, scissors? So the idea is that you make symbols with your hand, uh, and it's on a three-part cadence. On the third aspect of the cadence, you reveal what household item that you are choosing to fight your opponent with, and it's a theoretical fight. And one loses two another one ties another well one ties itself and one beats another so your only options for every single household item are to win lose or draw so rock paper scissors rock of course smashes scissors paper covers rock though and scissors cut paper so the idea is that there are only three outcomes each player has the exact same options and i know what your options are and i kind of know what you're thinking because as we're about to find out that's essentially what I'm thinking. There are some different variations of rock, paper, scissors. Uh, like, for example, if you're trying to figure out uh, who's the odd person out in a group of three, you can try it that way. Uh, if you want to do a process of elimination by who has the fewest number of symbols shown in each round of the game, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, but for the purposes of today, we're just going to talk about one-on-one -on -one classic rock, paper, scissors. Who is going to come out on top? And uh, who's going to have bragging rights, or in some cases, who's going to have some higher stakes outcomes as a result of the I have a hot take on this. We're going to get into something called the Nash Equilibrium. And you and I, we're calling this podcast Game Theory. We said that Game Theory has become a phrase that people use just to talk about strategy, just to talk about anything that has to do with decision making or complex thinking. But Game Theory is an actual behavioral economical theory. It is essentially the leading 
tree of thought and, and behavioral economics. The Nash Equilibrium won the Nobel Prize, I believe, in the 50s. Uh, Mr. Dr. Nash was John something Nash, I think. I'm sure you'll figure it out. For Dr. Me. John Nash. Yeah, yes, right. whatever. I, he, I'm sure he's a doctor. He has to be, right? He won the Nobel Prize. He's got to be a PhD. Of course he is. He has to be. I, don't, I mean, I don't know that he is, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that he is. Anyway, the idea... Uh, this is an actual game theory idea. We've talked about decision-making with Moneyball and, and chess and whatnot. This is an actual game theory situation. This is called the Nash Equilibrium. So before we get into that, I wanted to assert that in rock, paper, scissors, it's common, at least culturally in the United States, to go best two out of three. And I'm, my hypothesis, before we get into this episode, or my thesis, is that best two out of three defeats the Nash Equilibrium and it is the only acceptable way to play rock, paper, scissors. I suppose you could do best four out of seven, best three out of five or whatever. But when you play best two out of three between me and you to see who's going to be the, the champion of our little rock, paper, scissors match, what ends up happening is there's enough strategy against my opponent to completely eliminate the idea of pure chance. But if you play just once, it's essentially just chance. So let's get into what the Nash equilibrium is and why if we played forever, it's basically just dumb luck. Yeah, so uh, first of all, you're exactly right about best two out of three. Uh, any reasonable person knows that best two out of three is the only responsible way to play rock, paper, scissors. If you Because just one game, it's just like, it, that could be a fluke. I mean, if you lose one game of rock, paper, scissors, that's not really a fighting chance. Uh, saying best three out of five after you've lost two out of three is, I think, the peak of comedy in uh... the talk. <laughs> That's uh, that is gets. the most American thing of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And for people who go one step beyond that and for their friends who foolishly accommodate them and they say, oh, let's do four out of seven. Then. That's just desperate. And nobody really likes that. You've taken an amazing foolproof system of solving a problem and you've made it weird. But there's some math that underpins all this exactly like you've said. Uh, rock, paper, scissors is a fascinating example of the of the formal concept of game theory. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. We've mentioned the term zero-sum game a number of times on the podcast already. Rock, paper, scissors is a perfect example of that. So let's talk a little bit more about what a zero-sum game actually is. So put simply, a zero-sum game is a situation in which two or more people stand to either gain or lose or nothing. And every example of gain that happens in the scenario directly corresponds with at least one other player's loss. In other words, you're not generating value. The simplest scenario to illustrate a zero-sum game is a two-party contest. That's what you see in sports. In, in every game, kind of depending on the rules of the league or the sport, in general, one team comes away with a win, and the other team gets nothing. They get a loss. Uh, in some sports, the game is allowed to end in a tie, in which case both teams kind of share the loot equally. Right away... I can anticipate that the hockey fans among us are going to have a protest for that because they found a way to make what could most intuitively be understood as a zero-sum game, the result of a hockey game, and they've made it non-zero-sum. They've created a scenario wherein additional value is created if specific circumstances occur. So, for example... So that's a good call. Example, we should get into hockey on that because they're, the overtime situation in hockey is really kind of a bizarre... There's no incentive to try to win. It's it's kind of amazing, and a lot of people have tried to come up with ways to uh, to make the game better. I think they've made it more fun for the viewer by changing some of the rules. But from a mathematical point of view, in a lot of cases, it makes more sense to play not to lose the game 
And here's the reason for that. In the NHL, teams vie for playoff rankings based on the number of points that they earn during the course of the season. And they win points by winning games or tying games. So in each game, the winning team earns two points toward their season total going into the playoffs. And the losing team earns nothing. However, when two teams go into overtime, they each automatically earn one point before the end of the overtime period. They both have one point. And then an additional point is up for grabs in the actual overtime period. So in this case, the game results in a distribution of three total points instead of the usual two that are doled out for the winners of regulation games. So in this case, ending a regulation tie actually creates more points to kind of spread around the league. That's an example of a non-zero-sum game because of the structure of the way the league builds up to the playoffs. So the zero-sum game is a fundamental concept in game theory, although it's not the most common scenario. Actually, non-zero-sum games are more common. But the zero-sum game has a ton of applications that fit that scenario. Economics, the labor marketplace, uh, board games like chess, like we've talked about, sports like baseball, even card games like poker. Uh, they're zero-sum games because the sum total of the potential winnings available to every player at any time is always the same. And the amount lost by the losers of the game is the same as the amount gained by the winners. That total adds up to zero. So let's do the classic textbook example, and we'll get to our Nash equilibrium. So consider the following example. Two people are in direct competition for one with one another for some undefined but important set of stakes. So in our, We're example, marrying in the our princess. example, these people have two options available to them, and they have to make a choice. They can either cooperate with one another in whatever they're doing, or they can oppose one another. If the players cooperate, they each get to take home an equal share of the winnings. If one player cooperates, but the other one chooses to oppose, the opposing player takes home the entire lot, and the cooperating player loses everything. And if both players choose to oppose each other, then neither of them get anything. They don't lose anything, but they don't get anything out of it, out of it either. So, based on these two options, cooperate or oppose, the result of the game that these two people play could be any one of four possible outcomes. Either player A and player B cooperate and both win, split the pop. Player A cooperates, B opposes, and B takes everything. The opposite of that scenario, where B cooperates, A opposes, and takes everything. Or fourth, neither player cooperates, they both do their own thing, and they don't lose anything, but they don't gain anything. Right, so essentially walk away. Exactly. So the mathematics behind even a simple example like this one is super fascinating, and it's surprisingly complex given how simple the scenario is with just two players. Yeah, so let's be clear. You went to nerd school and you learned math. I did not. So for the people out there, essentially what happens is every time there's a 50-50 choice, it gets more complex infinitely. And the nerds have found a way to make this into something with fractions and parentheses and et cetera. But the idea is, is simple in that you, you can draw theoretically infinitely or you could win a, a certain amount in a row. So we talk about with the Nash equilibrium, you are statistically over a period of time incentivized to at some point, employ a strategy of always doing one thing. Most people choose to do rock. They're power. You were like that when you were a kid. So like, I'm going to do rock every time. This is why best two out of three kind of cuts through the Nash equilibrium because on that third one, are you going to 
keep it going or are you going to pull a bluff? But over time, if you keep doing rock and rock and rock and rock, I'm going to get wise to that. And then I'll start doing paper over and over and over again until you change. And at a certain point, uh, the nerds have found out that this is essentially both of us agreeing, as you mentioned, that we are going to, in the game, we're opposing one another and that it's all just kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, so the, the fundamental question here for players involved in games, whatever the type of competition is, the key question is, what's the best strategy? How should I approach this game? So let's go back to our two people, cooperate or oppose example. If I'm a player in this scenario, I stand to gain a lot by cooperating with somebody. I mean, it'd be great for me to come away from a situation with more than I actually have, but it would be terrible for me to lose everything that I've invested into this game. And there's only one way, well, there, there are two ways for me to lose, or for, for one of the players to lose, I should say. Uh, I lose if I choose to try to cooperate and the other player tries to take from me, if they oppose. Then I lose nothing, they gain everything, and the zero-sum balance is way out of my favor if you line this up like a grid let's say you've got cooperate and don't cooperate on the top and cooperate and don't cooperate on the side you get a four part two by two matrix of possibilities a box with boxes four box a box exactly. full of four boxes exactly in one corner there's our cooperate, cooperate, everybody's happy. This is utopia. This is the ideal outcome because everybody wins. But the Nash equilibrium, named after John Nash, the result of that is when people choose to not cooperate with one another. And nobody gains, but nobody loses. Because there are more scenarios in which it's possible for a player to lose than for both to gain, mathematically, the only rational thing for a player to do in this scenario is to not cooperate. So if you were going to play one game, one game only, winner take all or two opposing players take nothing, the best strategy for you is to oppose. Do not cooperate. Now, you got at something that's really interesting and important about if you know the games are going to end. We talked about this before. If you know when the end of a series of games is going to be, then your incentive is built in. You know the end result, and so all you have to do is not cooperate until you get to that point and the game is over. You don't lose anything. But if you don't know when the end is going to come, then actually over the long term, you have an incentive to try to cooperate because it'd be better to gain on the other end of that. But how does this relate to rock, paper, scissors? I have no idea. I went to, I went to fun school. <laughs> Cheers to that. So I guess theoretically, like like we mentioned a couple times, because if you play not best two out of three, not best three out of five or whatever, the, the ascending stuff is seven, nine, 11, uh, so that there's an odd number of games and therefore there must be a winner uh, plus draws, you know, whatever. That, those are like, everybody accounts those as something that just didn't happen essentially in rock, paper, scissors. Like if you draw, you're like, all right, well, that's not a real game. So let's go till there's a winner, which you can do in rock, paper, scissors because there's three choices, right? So I guess... And rock, paper, scissors, if, you're, if your life depended on it and you had to cooperate, you'd be incentivized to both just choose rock always. Yeah, that'd be the ideal outcome if you, uh, if you really couldn't afford to lose anything. I mean, you both agree that you're never going to lose anything. But the problem is that your opponent could just be lying to you. Uh, and so the aspiring rock, paper, scissors winner should take a look at the math behind that. So 
we already had our two by two four part grid. Well, in rock, paper, scissors, we have three options. You can either choose rock, paper, or scissors. Your opponent has the same situation. So we have a three by three nine part grid. There, so there are nine possible. So for those of you that can't see, if you're listening outlines. to the podcast, Chris has got three fingers and he's doing three fingers. It looks like a tic-tac-toe board kind of. Yeah, exactly. There's the three columns, three rows, and those are the possible outcomes. Every combination of rock, paper, and scissors with each of the other plays is represented in this nine-tile square. Right. You can map out wins, losses, and draws in each one of those scenarios. And the thing that you'll find here is that there are an exactly equal number of wins, losses, and draws for every combination available to the player. So unlike the unbalanced form of the game theory table where you can cooperate or oppose, it's actually mathematically 100% even that you're, you're going to have a chance outcome every time and you have a 33.3 repeating chance percent chance of winning, losing, and drawing. Uh, so really, if you're asking yourself, what's the ideal strategy, there isn't one for rock, paper, scissors, at least mathematically. And that's where you start to get into stuff like psychology. So you mentioned something earlier about how I always used to play rock. Uh, first of all, I was dominant at rock, paper, scissors. Let's get that out of the way first. I think that's anybody, pretty loose, loose, anyone loose who knows definition, this would agree. very loose. Yeah, uh, the, the history is foggy, but my dominance comes from my ability to play the player, so to speak, as opposed to manipulating the math. So since there's no 100% rational strategy every time, uh, we can kind of trace that back to why that is from a practical point of view if you're not interested in any of the math. So let's say you and I decide to have an ongoing rock, paper, scissors battle. And let's say I recommit to my strategy of going rock first and often. You, being the brainiac that you are, would choose what option in response to that? To be honest, I remember trying to beat you, and after I figured out what was going on, I want to say we were like 10 to 12, I would start with rock, and I would keep doing rock. That would, My strategy became, like, I'm going to get him off of rock, because then once you became off of rock, it became like I can just guess my way to winning here. But right. if, I, if, I, if I got into a game of chicken, if, if I'm going to go paper, then I gave you the upper hand of, like, when am I going to bait him into going paper? So I would just go rock. If I knew you were going rock, I'm going rock. That's an interesting strategy because you could just win and select paper and beat me every time if you know I'm going rock. If you know what I'm going to throw, there's always a counter strategy that's just better. Yes, but we, that's what we mentioned because if it's a one-time thing, 100%. But it's best two out of three because we're goddamn Americans. And yes. I know that this is I have to win a whole thing. So my first thing is I can't set up this chicken or egg crap between rock and paper. I have to get you thinking about scissors. I have to get the third variable in there. And the only way to do that is to get you off of this. Because once you go paper, then you, you're thinking about me going scissors. And at that point, I've got you in the loop-de-loop. -loop. It's sort of like playing, uh, it's exactly like playing chess, being white versus being black. Where like, if you're white, you dictate what's going on. If you're playing rock, you're dictating what's going on. But if I'm playing rock, we're, we're drawing. And at that point, you're mine. So you're investing in the long run set of returns so that you can win more games later on, even if that means you lose more up front. To win the game, I will, I will draw the game to win the match. That's a good strategy. And really, like this conversation itself is an example of a, an infinite number of variations on the same theme. 
which is basically any strategy that you come up with in rock, paper, scissors has to be based on pop psychology. It's not based on mathematics. John Nash would say that this is 100% a game of chance uh, because it is. But the psychology behind it is, is kind of fun, but it always reminds me of uh, that scene with the poison drinking in uh, Princess Bride. Oh, you fell uh, for one of the classic blunders. That movie is very, very meta. Yeah, that is exactly what that's like. That's a good call. That's a good Absolutely. analogy by you. So I have a question. We were thinking about chess, right? So Rock, Paper, Scissors had three outcomes. Chess theoretically has some things like a Googleplex possibilities at a certain point. Like every game is the same until at a point it's not. But with artificial intelligence, it seems like every game is calculable by a computer at some point. Like we're heading in a direction where that's possible. At that point, will chess start being mathematically like rock, paper, scissors? We're like, you just have to guess whether or not your opponent's going to take that tree or this tree. I guess at some point, you're not playing the game of chess and you're just playing the, the person. And that's, that happens at the super elite level of chess, right? And chess and rock, paper, scissors, three variables worth is like a Googleplex of variables. But and if, if, if chess is conquered in this way and Go is conquered in this way, the Japanese game of Go or the Chinese game of Go? I don't know. I think it's Chinese. I have to find that out. I'm pretty sure it's the ancient Chinese game of Go. Yeah. It's basically like the chess of, of uh, the Eastern Hemisphere. Brilliant game. If, if chess is conquerable and Go is conquerable, then theoretically any sort of board game where it's zero sum, there will never be a mathematical strategy that is winning. Every single strategy must be to the psychology of your opponent. And at that point, we're gambling. Yeah, r really the, the gamble in that scenario is, that, okay, let's pretend we're able to take our intellects or some computing power out to that far and able to calculate every single decision on this massive tree. By the way, let, we're, we're going to talk about Googleplex here in a second. But if we're able to map out every single possible path on this decision tree, then theoretically... There is no ideal strategy because there's always a counter strategy in response. And that's what happens when you have a finite number of possibilities. Uh, that's like a computer programming thing. You know, it's a difference between a, a fluid, continuous spectrum versus a discrete set, a set of discrete data that, when combined, kind of look roughly like they're continuous. Uh, rock, paper, scissors is like tic-tac-toe. It's very obvious. You can see there are only so many ways that you can play this game. It's not difficult to map out this three-by-three three set of possibilities. With other games, really, really difficult. With stuff like sports, I mean, there's no way you could you could do all of that. You know, the, the, the size of an ice rink and the number of players on a team and the width variances of the blades and the size variances of the pucks in manufacture. There's no way you can incorporate all of those variables there's probably not enough computing power in the universe over its history to be able to calculate something like that. It's well, it's really like interesting that. that you bring up sports when we're talking about rock, paper, scissors and games, right? Because if, if, if chess is a game of squares or rock, paper, scissors is a game of three variables and all games are theoretically, I don't have to have a physical capability to beat you. I think sports are in a different realm because you kind of do. And we're going to get into this in further episodes. We have a lot of sports episodes coming. And we also have a lot of military history coming because that's sort of the same thing. Like there's an element of military history that's luck and that there's also an element of these soldiers are better. 
these weapons are better. This is just a better situation for these people. And there's no amount of stratagem that would have ever changed that. It doesn't matter what, you know, the Alabama Crimson Tide do. The Packers are going to kill them. They could run the same four plays. It would never be close. It would never, it doesn't matter. There's no calculable math involved. They're not competitive. So that's barely even a competition. So that's, that's an interesting part of that. But in this, that's not true. Every single person is, if those who are most normal people who are, you know, fortunate enough to have hands or whatever, and even if not, you can play on a computer. It's three variables. You don't need to have physical capability to be successful at this, which is what makes it a purely mathematical shit show. Yeah. It, well, and, and what you're getting at is I think the difference between competitive sports where people try to oppose one another's efforts to accomplish something versus just scenarios. I mean, there's, there's nothing my opponent can do in rock, paper, scissors to stop me from playing any of the three variables. Whereas in a game like football, it's really hard to get sacks because there's an entire offensive line and a running back picking up pass coverage, preventing me from trying to do that kind of thing. And so in that way, Contests like sports, especially the the team sports where you do have the head-to-head direct competition and and opposition to try to stop someone from achieving a goal, uh, that's where you get a different layer of competitive element. There's no barrier to entry for rock, paper, scissors. None at all. But in sports or various other competitions like that, uh, you have to be good at the thing that you're trying to do. It requires skill. It doesn't take skill for a knight to take a, a piece on a square. That knight just takes that piece by rule. It doesn't matter who is moving the knight or what reasons they have or how much experience they have in doing so. That's just the way the game works out. And that's a different uh, set of scenarios there. And then it does come down to strategy. Speaking of barrier to entry, when we come back from our break, we are going to talk about how rock, paper, scissors might be trying to become a sport. Okay, we'll be right back after this. Okay, Chris, welcome back. Uh, rock, paper, scissors. So we were talking about there's no barrier to entry. Upon Googling some research for this episode and hearing rock, paper, scissors was in the news because uh, the NFL draft, as we record this, is on the way. And the Philadelphia Eagles head coach, Nick Sirianni, said that he, on virtual meetings with potential draft picks, plays rock, paper, scissors with the prospects to see how competitive they are now. As I live in Philadelphia, the people in Philly obviously took this incredibly rationally and they did not have an opinion about whether or not that was incredibly stupid or incredibly sweet. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. They did not like that he said that. They're like, so. Yeah, it seems like one of those gimmicky things. That's like like a Mike McCarthy level of galaxy brain. Like, I've been doing some, some analytics and players that play games often win at those games they sometimes lose but they also often win they can win they can lose i mean things things happen people do stuff so this has been in the news right now and what we found is that from a competitive standpoint making someone play rock paper scissors is quite literally we found from this episode not finding out how competitive they are i I can't imagine a more hilarious and useless way to try to achieve that goal i mean you you could do anything you could glean competitive insight from any number of stories in that person's background any answers to any personality question playing rock paper scissors i think is i mean it's one step above a coin flip i don't know what this man was thinking and i don't think it's a coincidence that the philadelphia eagles and the other teams in their entire division 
uh, were the funniest thing in sports in the entire year of 2020. That's exactly. So let's compare it to a coin flip. So in a coin flip, I guess at least the coin flip happens instantaneously. A rock, paper, scissors to achieve equilibrium would take an hour and a half. So if you're a prospect, you're like, what are we doing? However, that being said, because there's no barrier to entry, I could defeat people like, uh, I don't know who's getting dragged, Trevor Lawrence and Kyle Pitts at rock, paper, scissors. There's nothing. There's no reason. There's no amount of research that they could do that could, for the love of God, give them an advantage over me. And did you know, Chris, there is a rock, paper, scissors world championship. Now, I did some research on this, and I found that there's really not a lot out there about this other than a website that has articles, one of which is called Why Do People Call Rock, Paper, Scissors Rochambeau? Why do people call rock, paper, scissors Rochambeau? I have not clicked on that article, but it will be linked in the show to show notes, of course. And uh, to be honest with you, it's going to be a very fascinating read. But the more interesting thing to me is that there are quite a few tournaments. Now, here are the ones that are, have been active within the last 20 years. The National Extreme RPS Competition of 2007 and 2008. The grand prize purse, five grand. Not bad. And especially because, as we've discovered, there's literally no reason that can't be you. There's nothing, there's no reason. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's kind of the, the fun of this low-stakes scenario. I mean, five grand isn't exactly low stakes, but uh, it, it doesn't require any preparation at all. Any person could be lucky enough to win on the day. And we can play these games with, oh, I've got strategy, and I know how to read people, and uh, yes, I play these little math games with people, but it's just luck. It's 100% luck. So... The fact that there's a world championship to me says that we're starved for entertainment. What is this, late 2000s, you said? I mean, yeah, everybody was sad about uh, one thing or another. Everybody was ecstatic about one thing or another. It's a perfect combination. The desperate and the elated coming together for a test of sheer chance to try to win actual U.S. currency. This was really fascinating to me because... Again, no barrier to entry. Anyone can do it. It's really kind of inspiring in a weird way because it could be your day. It could just be your day. That's true. And nobody can do anything about it. And Chris, you know, we could, I'm going to reach out to the uh, World Rock, Paper, Scissors Association. As everybody knows, Repsa. And I'm going to ask them what the steps are to sponsor an event because you can do that at their website. It says, do you want to host or sponsor a professional Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament? Contact us. I'm like, I'm going to do the legwork here, and maybe we'll set up a GoFundMe, and we can have a Game Theory. The the inaugural Game Theory WRPSA-sanctioned Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament. Please respect the the brand, Repsa. The Repsa World Championship. I'm going to call it... uh, We're going to call it the Dr. Nash Memorial Tournament. It's going to be like the Masters, so you get the Golden Fist. So that's, that's either the coolest thing or the least respectful way to pay homage to Dr. Nash. Either way, I'm 100% in. That's a good call. What if someone should win a scholarship for this too? This is not a bad idea because you could win you the win fist and you could get like 1500 bucks or something. Like, yeah, whatever. Half the money goes to the, the, the Repsa champion and the other half of the money goes to the nerd that got into, I'm assuming, Stanford. Fascinating. Well, Nick, did you know that in addition to having these kind of fun and games, but still real money stakes, there are actually potential legal consequences to succeeding or failing in rock, paper, scissors. Did you know that? Right. So, okay, let's talk about, so you can get sued for losing at rock, paper, scissors. Well, not quite, uh, but something to that effect. Sure. 
uh, it turns out there is a precedent in U.S. case law for the application of rock, paper, scissors as a dispute settlement mechanism. No. Okay, hold on. Let me guess what state this is. Let me guess what state. Can I guess the state? I want to guess the state. You can guess the state. You know you're going to get it. It has to be Texas. Oh, close. Uh, the Texas of the Southeast, a.k.a. Florida. Oh, I mean, that. the fact that it's that civilized is fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it turns out that this was, this was not that long ago. Uh, this was after the invention of coins. So this dispute between two people turned competitive, even though it is equally chance, as we've discussed. Uh, so in 2006, there was a case in Florida in which a judge kind of got tired of the participants' nonsense. And late in the proceedings, the judge decided he was going to have rock, paper, scissors be a dispute mechanism for one of the steps in the trial. The case for this, or the text for this, uh, I pulled off a legal website. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, Nick, you're not a lawyer. We would never give anybody legal advice. And on that note, uh, click the link in the show notes, and we are going to credit the people that wrote this in the show notes. We love you, and we will take this down if we need to. Absolutely. Uh, but, but it is, is U.S. case law. So this, this comes from the United States, States District, District Court, Middle, Middle District, District of Florida, or Orlando, Orlando Division. Division. Uh, it was in a 2006 case between Avista Management Incorporated as the plaintiff versus Wausau Underwriters Insurance Company, the defendant. So This was between two so companies? This wasn't like a marital dispute? This was like a company's company sued each other, and the judge was like, I hate you. Just do this and get it over with. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, this, so this is what the judge wrote. The judge wrote, This matter comes before the court on the plaintiff's motion to designate the location of a Rule 30b-6 deposition. Upon consideration of the motion, the latest in a series of Gordian knots the parties have been unable to tangle without enlisting the assistance of federal courts, it is ordered that said motion is denied. Instead, the court will fashion a new form of alternative dispute resolution to wit. At 4 p.m. on Friday, June 30th, 2006, counsel shall convene at a neutral site agreeable to both parties. If counsel cannot agree on a neutral site, they shall meet at the front steps of the Sam M. Gibbons U.S. Courthouse at 801 North Florida Avenue, Tampa, Florida, 33602. Each lawyer shall be entitled to be accompanied by one paralegal, who shall act as an attendant and witness. They get a second for this. Stop, 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 stop. Counsel shall engage in one game of rock, paper, scissors. The winner of this engagement shall be entitled to select the location for the 30B6 deposition to be held somewhere in the county during the period of July 11th and 12th, 2006. I stopped listening. I can't handle it. We got we to appeal and get this to the Supreme Court. We need it to be American law that it is best two out of three, your honor. Agreed, but don't worry. The judge went further. He said if either party disputes the outcome of this engagement, which they both should, should have, an appeal may be filed and a hearing will be held at 8.30 a.m. on Friday, July 7, 2006, before the undersigned in courtroom 3, George C. Young, U.S. Courthouse and Federal Building, 80 North Huey Avenue, Orlando, Florida, 32801. Done and ordered. In the chambers in Orlando, Florida, June 6th. You get your friends. I'll get my friends. We'll meet out back after school. Yep, okay, that, so yep, exactly, uh, a couple exactly points there. I thought when you first started telling this story, it was like clearly a bad divorce. And the judge was like, I don't care anymore. 
one of you guys pick the car. I don't Who care. Who wants custody of the kid? Correct. Rocks, like, two doesn't want custody of the kid? No, that was a mean joke. It was a mean joke. Not funny. But it was a little funny. It is. Yeah, it was a little funny. Chris, they made the, the judgment the lawyers play rock, paper, scissors. He didn't even make oh, yeah. anybody from the companies. The lawyers. Yeah. So the lawyers. If, for those of you in law school out there or thinking about becoming a lawyer, uh, everything we said about this being a game of chance, good luck. No, and, and I think that speaks to the fairness of the game. I mean, obviously, this is probably pretty tongue-in-cheek. The judge was clearly pissed off at these guys for dragging out needless administrative proceedings. The, the term Gordian knot got thrown around in this order. But it also speaks to the fairness of the activity because there's an equal chance on both sides that one or the other could come out with the verdict in their favor. I think that there is a psychological aspect to rock, paper, scissors that is different than flipping a coin. And I think it is incredibly important in that regardless of the facts that you don't control your own destiny, you feel like you do. And as a result of that, the results of rock, paper, scissors are undisputed and everybody buys in immediately. Like you can go, anybody knows the rules, understands how to play. You play best two out of three, best four out of seven. You could play forever Everyone agrees, like, this is it. I win or I lose right here, right now. And if you leave it up to a coin flip, you're like, well, how do I even know that's a real coin? This is total bullshit. I've often thought about that in one of our favorite movies, Friday Night Lights, where they're flipping a coin. And, you know, by by rule, eventually, if you flip three, there's going to be an odd man out. There are three coins, and that team doesn't get to go to the playoffs or whatever. Like, I feel like a rock, paper, scissors tournament is more because you get the feel like, hey, I did my best. And like your best is the same as everybody else. It's not different factually, but it feels different. And I think that makes it, honestly, one of the most fair 50-50 ways of compromise that we've come up with as a species because of the Nash equilibrium. Exactly. You get that, that feeling. You get to satiate the monkey brain in all of us that wants agency in the outcomes in our lives. But it's still completely fair because it's completely out of our control. Nick... Let's conclude here with a final brief discussion. What is best? The rock, the paper, or the scissors? I, well, rock is best, but I suspect that you win more with paper because paper is softer. The other two, they seem like weapons. And so I think people like, oh, paper. I think that it's just sneakier. People that throw paper are sneaks. Don't trust, gotta watch out for, trust the paper. You got to watch out for those people, Chris. We got a lot of episodes coming up. We're going to talk about uh, how it's better to engage. We're going to do some Detroit Lions stuff. The Lions and the Packers played a game where maybe they both should have just taken a knee and tied. We'll talk about that, as we had mentioned in this episode. We got a lot of stuff coming up on uh, sports, and we're finally going to get into some uh, international warfare policy, which should be fun. That'll be right up your alley, Chris. Shout out to the new parents. parents.